You ever been thirsty? I mean, really thirsty. People are injured, especially with the loss of blood. When they're struggling to recover from surgeries in the hospital. One of the things I've always noticed is they want, what they want to have is a drink of water. More than anything in the world. Or ice chips. Or water on a sponge. I think it's kind of fitting. And in telling us he thirsts, Jesus is also telling us that his physical body is dying. Well, all four Gospels tell us that Jesus was offered sour wine to drink from a sponge as he was dying on the cross. Only the Gospel of John tells us these words from Jesus. I am thirsty. Then John tells us that Jesus said these words fulfill Scripture. And as we've seen before with these last words from the cross, this Scripture is from Psalms. Psalm 69:21 says this, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Matthew and Mark record that Jesus offered wine mixed with myrrh. Remember myrrh? Remember the Magi? And they said that's what would be one of the things later on. But then he refused to drink it. It's believed that myrrh or gall, if you see it gall in your text, as you're following along, whatever you're following along on, you version or something else, that myrrh or gall was added to the wine to act as an anesthetic or a poison to help deaden Jesus' pain or help him die sooner. But Jesus refuses this cup literally and symbolically that he asked to be delivered from in the garden. And Jesus faces his death with all of his human senses. And while he says these words fulfill scripture, he's also in pain. The sun is scorching down on his head in the heat of the afternoon. Imagine how thirsty it would be when you haven't had any kind of water or anything for days. In the early church, they struggled with whether it is Jesus as a human or as God on the cross. Because he's both divine and human, they argued that because of his divinity, he could not suffer like you or I would on the cross. That he only appeared to suffer on the cross. That he only seemed to be human. There was a belief that God would not allow God's self to suffer like that. But here in John, John wants to make sure we know that Jesus experiences everything that we do. Which is interesting to me because I've always seen John's Gospel as the one where Jesus seems to be walking around above the earth and saying all of these pithy statements, long diatribes with deep meanings. And yet John is probably the most human of the Gospels. But in reality, Jesus fully understands you because he is fully human and fully God. 
That's where they finally got to. And in life and in death on the cross, he went through the full range of human emotions and all the physical things that happen to us, to you and me, in our lives. When you are most joyful, he knows what that feels like. And he also knows what it means to be in deepest grief. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, one of the most powerful, at his friend Lazarus' death. Even though he knows he's bringing him back. So when you and I bear our own crosses in life, we can lift our hearts and prayers to Jesus We know because we know He truly knows our human frailty. He is the divine, all-knowing God too who understands everything in all of creation. And we learned before that the Hebrew word for breath or wind is ruach. Say that with me. Ruach. Yeah, that was a good one over there. I heard that like... That's the band people, and yes, that's what happens there. Well, the Greek similar word is pneuma. Say pneuma. 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 We know lots of words that come from pneuma. Pneumonia. Pneumatic. Things about air. It can mean spirit, but it can also mean wind or breath. Pneuma. And John's Gospel is full of times when this word is used to draw attention to the work of God's Spirit. On Jesus' last night with the disciples, He tells them He can't remain with them, that the Spirit will come abide with them forever, the Advocate, the Companion. And when He appears after the resurrection, He literally breathes on them, pneuma, and to receive the Holy Spirit, pneuma, double word score. And because John begins gospel within the beginning, like we've seen, he wants us to connect this with the creation story. So just like God breathed Numa into Adam, breathed that life into Adam, now Jesus is breathing a new kind of life into his followers in that text. But there are other places in John's Gospel where he describes the coming of the Holy Spirit in a less dramatic way, but not less important. In two places, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as thirst quenching. Thirst quenching. As a spring of living water that will never run dry and that bubbles up abundant and eternal life. The first is where Jesus first uses this metaphor is to describe himself as a Samaritan woman at the well. John 4, 5, and 6. Remember the story? When the disciples go into town to buy food, Jesus stays behind. He meets a Samaritan woman at the well to draw water in the middle of the day. And that was important because normally, usually, women came early in the morning before it got hot. Who wants to go out and draw water when it's hot? So that meant she was not regarded very well in her community because she wouldn't come out while they were there. And during that conversation, Jesus offers her the promise of what living water that will never leave her thirsty again if she just asks. 
And then later Jesus says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be what? Thirsty. Never be thirsty. Then later at the festival of tabernacles or booths that remembers the Israelites wandering the wilderness, which is kind of weird because right now I'm actually wandering with them in the wilderness in my chronological Bible study, so I feel like I'm going in time in two different places. And in the part where the priests would pour fresh water all over the altars and offering to God, a remembrance of how God provided water for the Israelites in the desert, At that point in John, Jesus cries out this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. So what are we thirsty for? God is offering Israel this abundant life. You see in John that Jesus is doing the same. The Spirit of God is active in both the Old and New Testaments. It's his point. That the people in both times are thirsty. That they're thirsty for justice and righteousness to flow down like rivers, where Amos tells us. They are thirsty for Messiah. They are thirsty for freedom from their oppression of the Romans. They are thirsty to be loved and valued. Our world, too, is filled with thirsty people who think that the water comes from here. Those in the advertising game know that. This is not a very good one, though. There are lots of better bottles out there. Members mark purified water. Mineral enhanced for taste. But Valentine's, if you love them, you'll buy them a diamond. At Christmas, if you love them, you'll buy them a Lexus or this or that. And happiness can be found in our money or our cars or our jobs or our vacations or the next cream or the next procedure. Maybe some of you right now gave up junk food for Lent. Good for you. That is a great thing. But think about it. We call it junk food. We know it's not good for us. We know it's not good for our bodies, and yet somehow it satisfies a hunger inside of us, not a nutritional one. And so we still eat it. And none of us are immune to that hunger. I love almost every flavor of Mountain Dew. I love Twinkies now that they're back. All the flavors. And I love little Debbie's. But they're junk. We know that. We could even read the labels, the names on the labels, enough to be able to know what's actually in it. We don't care. We're thirsty to be adored or thin, powerful or excited, or to be young again in our society. But even if we get these things we find that none of them can truly satisfy our thirst like Isaiah was talking about, which was in our call to worship. And so in the second verse of that passage, Isaiah says, Why waste your time on the things that do not satisfy? 
Especially when you can have the living water of love and joy and peace and justice. It doesn't come in this bottle that won't ever satisfy us from the box of little Debbie's. That is what Jesus offered the woman at the well and the people at the festival. He speaks to clearly to us as people who have drunk again and again from the well of our culture and found that all the full sugar and all the low calorie and all the diet drinks and all the zero drinks only give us empty calories that just make us even more thirsty for more of the same. It's really true. Diet drinks actually make you more hungry. Sugar's not good for you either, but there's not really any win there. Because your body can't tell that it's not sugar, and so it produces insulin and tries to figure out what to do. Jesus calls the people who want more. I mean, do you thirst for more than you have in your life? John Wesley, our founder, called that kind of quenching work of the Holy Spirit sanctification. Say sanctification with me. Sanctification. Now you can pretend you went to seminary. Sanctification. Sanctification. What does that mean? Well, it means as Christ's Spirit works within us, transforming us so we become more and more like Christ. Be made perfect in love. Holy. It's a journey. And as we move along that journey, the Spirit makes us more and more thirsty for what God wants us to do in this world and offers us the abundant life that only a relationship with God can offer us through Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can satisfy us a life of loving God and of loving our neighbor. And then in John, later on, Jesus reminds them of a scripture they would have known well in that passage about the festival. He says this, Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. The rivers of living water flow out of your heart. You see, Jesus is the source of that living water, this abundant life. But here's the thing. He says it will flow from believers as well. Not only comes from Him and comes to us, but it will flow out from us into the world, into other people. Rivers of living water. So to believe in Jesus is to trust Him to follow in His way, to do what He did. And out of that, living water will flow out of you into others around you. Over the last year, I've found myself very thirsty. And that living water wasn't flowing the way that I wanted. I was parched and dried to the bone. And by the fall... I'd poured out everything that I had in every way I possibly could over the first six months of the pandemic. And there wasn't much left to give. And thankfully, Staff Parish saw that too, and they made available to me four weeks of rest and renewal to let that happen for me. 
To be filled with that river of living water again. That abundant life to find balance in my Pepsi. Remember, it's not Pepsi like the drink. Some of my clergy friends have not had that same choice and chance. And I have grieved for them. One of my friends is stepping down from their church at the end of this year. I was obviously not alone because our bishop just sent out this week a video that obviously he's concerned about providing clergy care for all those who are struggling. Living water. We all need to have. Thirsty. And back on the cross, Jesus cries, I am thirsty. And John 19.29 says that a jar full of sour wine was standing there. And this jar full of sour wine was certainly not like the fine wine He created that first miracle at the wedding in Galilee and Cana. The wine He offered was the sweetest. Remember, it was the best wine. And the cup they wanted Him to drink in His death was sour. Now the other Gospels record that Jesus refuses the wine offered to Him on the cross. But John's Gospel is the only one that tells us that He received this wine from a hyssop branch. When you're filling the blank words. Now hyssop, or hyssop, or however you want to say it, is a brushy branch. It's not really the kind of branch that supports the weight of a fully soaked sponge. Think more of a bush trying to hold a bush up. Remember that John's attention is very often to the symbolic meaning of things as well as the literal meaning of things. Because in John's Gospel, he also tells us Jesus was sent to his death at noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And that's the day and time the Passover lambs are slaughtered. Now, for us Christians, that doesn't really mean anything to us. But those reading John's words would have made the connection between the hyssop branch and his crucifixion on the day of preparation for the Passover. For us as Christians, you see, we see God's mightiest acts of salvation as Jesus' death and resurrection, which we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday or Easter, which is only two weeks away, folks. Two weeks. But for Jews in Jesus' day, and for Jesus and his family and the disciples, God's mightiest act of salvation was Passover. Passover. It was the day in which the Jews would commemorate God's rescue of them from slavery in Egypt. We're going to remember it too when we gather for our Seder meal next Sunday afternoon at 3. Because the Seder meal is the Passover. It's walking through it with a Christian lens. And we're going to learn again from Rick on the final night of their captivity that God sent the last of the ten plagues to secure their deliverance. You get extra bonus points if you can name all the ten plagues on your notes right now or at home or write them down. 
And that death was going to strike the very firstborn, every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human and animal. But to save the Israelites from this horrible loss, God instructs Moses to tell them to select an unblemished lamb, and before they cook it to eat it with their families, they were to dip a branch of what do you think in the blood? Hyssop. Dip the hyssop in the blood of the lamb and mark the doorposts of their homes and stay inside. And as death came through every street in Egypt, it passed over those homes marked with the blood of the lamb and the Israelites were saved. Do you see it now? That John's connection is intentional. He is telling us that Jesus is the Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, who saves us from death and delivered us from slavery. Amen? Mind blown. There's so much there that connects together with things that we don't understand necessarily. And if that's not enough, Jesus says in Mark, as he lists more than likely the fourth cup of the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, in his last Passover meal, says this, This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. And Matthew adds, Poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Luke describes Jesus' cup at the Passover in this way, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And those who are gathered at the cross hear Jesus' physical pain in his words, I am thirsty. Maybe someone, one of his friends, or someone who felt bad for him, offered him a drink to ease his suffering. It never mentions the Roman soldiers doing this. Or someone who knew he was dying and wanted to help him die quicker. But those gathered around him, and we know that Jesus is spiritually thirsty right now too. Because he has drunk the cup of death given to him. And the one who has offered this living water and eternal life is now parched and bone dry. Because he has poured out everything that he has for them and for you and for me. And he's just done. And he's done it. In his letter to Philippi, the Apostle Paul talked about Jesus' self-emptying, pouring out, to describe what Jesus did for us on the cross and what his followers are called to do through their acts of self-love. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he urges us. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own self-interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. What was that mindset that's supposed to be in us? Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
cross. And after all, He poured out everything for us and to us. And after all, He did that for us. He poured out everything that He had. So as one of His followers, what I want to do is to make sure that I'm living into the words that He left us. What is, I am thirsty for me, mean? That we can relieve His thirst when we help those who suffer. I mean, after all, He makes it clear we are in Matthew 25 people. In Matthew 25, you know the verses, I was what? I was thirsty. And you gave me something to drink. And later on, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you what? You did it to me. You did it to me. See, if we drink deeply from the living water that Jesus offers, it not only satisfies us, but it also transforms and empowers us to be, be for those around us what Jesus is for us. That we are filled with living water and are able then to be able to share that living water with others around us. You know, we're all thirsty for our less divided and peaceful world. We are thirsty to become gentler, kinder, more patient, more like Jesus. We're all thirsty for the pace of the world to slow down a bit and our lives to become less frantic. Some of us found that this last year. And others found themselves in a world spinning even more faster and even more frantic than it was before. And look and go, what do you mean your world slowed down? My world just sped up. But what are you thirsty for? What thirst needs to be satisfied? Where does Jesus thirst for you to do something in your world? Where are you called to pour yourself out for someone else? Because in pouring out ourselves for others who are thirsty, we find that our own thirst is satisfied too. Maybe one of my favorite saints says it the best about what that living water looks like when it's lived out in our lives. And I thought, what if we put our name into everything that St. Francis says in that peace prayer? Well, it went like this. Lord, let Jeremy be an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let Jeremy sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that Jeremy may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And as St. Francis recognized it in giving of ourselves that we find the greatest gift of all. That in pouring ourselves out on behalf of others that we find ourselves continually filled with the water that never leaves us thirsty again and leads to eternal life. So let us drink deeply 
from this cup of salvation. Because the, the world is so thirsty. And we've been given the living water everyone so desperately needs. If we'll just open it up and let it pour out all around us. And not just keep it for ourselves, capped and bottled, because we feel good that we have it. Or maybe we're all the way down here somewhere. That last bit. I know what that feels like. I think I was about two drops down here at the bottom of that thing just trying to get some water out of it. But if we keep giving it out, that God keeps filling it back up. When we spend time in prayer and in study and reading Scripture and being in our small group and being in worship and serving others, God just keeps filling it back up. So let us drink deeply from the cup of salvation He gave to us when He became spiritually thirsty so all of us would be quenched. Amen. And as we pray a psalm of thanks from Psalm 69, you'll hear the other words that are part of that psalm that he was quoting from the cross as well as Kim comes to share with us. You would hear these words from Psalm 69. Save me, God, because the waters have reached my neck. I have sunk into deep mud. My feet can't touch the bottom. I have entered deep water. The flood has swept me up. I am tired of crying. My throat is hoarse. My eyes are exhausted with waiting for my God. But me, my prayer reaches you, Lord, at just the right time. God, in your great and faithful love, answer me with your certain salvation. Save me from the mud. Don't let me drown. Let me be saved from those who hate me. And from those watery depths. Don't let me be swept away by the floodwaters. Don't let the abyss swallow me up. Don't let the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, for your faithful love is good. Turn to me in your great compassion. Don't hide your face from me, your servant, because I am in deep trouble. Answer me quickly. Come close to me. Redeem me. Save me because of my enemies. You know full well the insults I have received. You know my shame and my disgrace. All my adversaries are right there in front of you. Insults have broken my heart. I'm sick about it. I hoped for sympathy, but there wasn't any. I hoped for comforters, but couldn't find any. They gave me poison for food to quench my thirst, and they gave me vinegar to drink. And me? I'm afflicted. I'm full of pain. Let your salvation keep me safe, God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together and worship. Come to the Lord. 
Paul said, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. O blessed Savior, whose lips were dry and whose throat was parched, Grant us the water of life. For all of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness, may we taste of your love and mercy now and evermore and bring the same to all those around us. And everybody both here and at home said, Amen. Today you're dismissed. Let's do the pre-chorus again. Two.